Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I'm Randy Frisch, CMO at Uberflip, and I get to spend my days talking to amazing marketing leaders, understanding the career that they've had. And today we're going to chat with Patrick Spencer. Now, Patrick, he's got an interesting path. In fact, when, when I started to look Patrick up, who I, I will admit I know, and I'll tell you how in a moment, but I, I had no idea how long he had spent in school. I hit on this in the podcast that you listen to almost 20 years in different university programs, including a PhD. And you look at that and, and none of it tied to marketing, yet he's figured out how to rise, you know, to, you know, VP head of right now a senior director role in a very large organization called Fortinet. And it's wild to see that career. You know, I think a lot of us think of this idea that we've got to, you know, go to school and very quickly jump in and figure out what we're doing before we're 28 years old. Otherwise, we're going to lose every opportunity that's going to be ahead. Yet here's someone who took the time to you know, get perspective, figure out what they're passionate about, and then figure out how they could bring their passions into their career. And you know, what you'll find interesting with Patrick is for a long time, he's had this perspective on how do you think about your audience and what they want to hear from you. And obviously that's important from a content perspective in marketing, but it's also just the idea of personalizing the delivery. It's, you know, I told you I had a story about Patrick. I got to know him a little bit better over the last couple of years. Uh, Fortinet is a customer at Uberflip, but back in 2013, he worked with a company called Live Person. And the wild thing here, that was just after uh, I was involved in, in starting Uberflip. And in those days, we had most customers who would work with us who would just kind of create a little bit of content and, and try and organize it on the resource center as an example at a very high level. But what Live Person was doing was very different than a lot of other customers. They were organizing content for the different events they would do through field marketing and events on roadshows. And I thought that at the time, I remember this example, even though I didn't know Patrick, I was like, that is awesome. That level of personalization, that level of taking the content and saying, this content will work for this region or this group of buyers versus this content will work for that group. Back in 2013, that was very forward thinking. Today, a lot of us, as we think about ABM and our demand gen strategies, we've started to segment content in those ways. But I think what you'll hear, you know, maybe more so in the second half of this show, when we, when we talk about the buyer journey and how Patrick thinks about that is his framework around content in that way. And the more so the buyer journey and the matrices he has to have with demand gen members of his team and beyond. So lots to unpack in this, in this episode. Episode. I think you'll enjoy. Without further ado, here comes Patrick Spencer, who is the Senior Director of Content Marketing and Research at Fortinet. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us here on The Marketer's Journey. And everyone is ready to hear about your journey, how you got to the point of being a senior director at Fortinet, a company that's experiencing some amazing growth where you oversee content marketing and research. But let's, let's kind of take it back to the early days. And 
Yeah, I know you and I were kidding earlier about, you know, when your your real professional career started, whether it was in school with all the education you did, or whether it was your first job, which I, I don't know if you were telling the truth when you said it was in your 30s, but when do you think your career actually started? No, that's a great question, Randy. It depends on how you spin it, right? Some of those academic studies and even the side jobs that I had while I was in academia, in a way, helped prepare me for my professional career that really started in my early to mid-30s when I was working on a, a doctorate and uh, ended up transferring from one university to the other. And I decided at that juncture I would go part-time in the program and take on a, uh, a full-time professional role. Uh, I ended up getting a job with an agency, uh, which gives you a, a breadth of experience working with a client across different types of marketing activities. And that laid the groundwork for me to move into a, a corporate role, which that was, the first that was one back was in microsystems. That was back in '98 with Navajo Company. Is that to have that right? Not, Navajo. Right. Navajo. There you go. I, I, yeah. I was going to screw something up today. We might as well get it out. Get that out early. Yeah, it's wild. If if you check out Patrick Spencer's background, even just on LinkedIn, I mean. It's interesting to look at some of the things that you studied and that you are now a leader in a marketing org. I mean, the, some of these things would not necessarily be what you would connect the dots on. I see here a BA in biblical studies, which explains some of the interesting languages that you have under your belt. You've got a master's of divinity. You've got a master's of arts. You've got a PhD. I mean, you've got a lot of perspective on the world and, and understanding, I, I suppose, of people through a lot of those those studies is is that a big part of of why you've focused your career from what i see here so much on understanding the customer great question a couple tangential stories uh related to my academic endeavors one while i was working on my bachelor's degree well actually all four degrees if you go back in time is a great way to make money on the side pay the tuition and uh, pay for uh, housing and food among other things I had newspaper routes, I believe, starting my junior year in college. And this is back in the mid-80s, and that's when I started. And I computerized all the records. I had 700 customers, and they weren't in the best neighborhoods, and it was hard to collect money from them and, and manage the entire process. They had little flip cards that uh, they theoretically wanted to use, which I threw in the trash from day one and actually wrote a program. <laughs> back in the DOS days, right on DOS, and computerized all the record collection for those customers, sent out a week or a monthly newsletter when I would bill them, stuck in the envelope for the dollar money to me, and I was able to increase the, the percent of folks who actually sent their money in, which meant I had to do fewer door-to-door stops in the middle of the night trying to collect money from these deadbeats. <laughs> but you know, as part of that process, the newspaper I worked for at the time you know, thought I had achieved something noteworthy, and they nominated me for a Texas Newspaper Carrier of the Year, and I actually won. They ran television commercials and print okay. ads and so forth on me. That was about all they had to brag about at that point in time, I think, as a newspaper. But that experience really helped me learn how do you connect with the customer in a way, right? I was doing newsletters while I was in college with them and so forth. So that, that's one interesting element that might might be useful that you know I have been able to leverage in my professional career. And the second would be, you know, for some of my graduate studies, as well as certainly my, my PhD work, uh, I spent a lot of uh, time studying ancient rhetoric as well as modern rhetoric, rhetoric and how do you structure arguments and so forth. Uh, read and response criticism, 
drew upon it heavily for my dissertation, which is published. You can buy it for $160 on Amazon today, I think. And how you structure all that and connect with your audience and the interplay that takes place between the author, the text, and the actual reader really has informed a lot of the stuff that I, I do today uh, from a content marketing standpoint or, for that matter, uh, in the past when I worked in on uh, customer marketing programs. I, I love that. I love how you, you've managed to you know, take all this amazing education that you have and connect it to a world that, as we said, most wouldn't connect the two. But, you know, I think two parts that I took from that story of delivering newspapers is, you know, the importance you placed on the data that you had and ultimately the way you communicated with those people through that, through that uh, newsletter. So it's really interesting to see in, you know, 20 years into your career now, if we'll call it, you know, the more professional career. I mean, you've made some pretty good choices along the way. I mean, I look at some of the companies that you've been with, and I'm sure you'll be able to tell us more of the highs and the lows of some of these. But, you know, for everyone's perspective, you've had stops at Sun Microsystems, Symantec. We've got Live Person here, Pro Unlimited, and more recently, Fortinet. Maybe you can talk to us about that moment in your career where you, you maybe took your biggest chance and it led you to a great opportunity or it led you to, you know, more opportunity that would be, that would follow from there. Like, what can you trace back as that moment that was, thank goodness I did that? There's probably a couple and all of us early on our, in our career are, we come to various crossroads, right? Uh, and I remember when I was at the agency, when I had secured the position over in the corporate world at Sun Microsystems, which I think was a senior manager position at the time, I was offered a promotion to a VP level position at the agency, right? So do I want to be a VP? Do I want to be a senior manager? If you're just chasing titles, then you're going to go for the VP position, right? I was, you know, early, mid thirties, whenever that took place. But I wanted the experience, and ultimately, it was by far the right decision is to move over into the corporate world, which would give me a much broader breadth of experience would allow me to take a lot of the experience and skills I'd learned on the agency side and begin to apply them and see them come to fruition on the corporate side. That's one challenge with the agency is you're able to provide consultative recommendations and feedback, and you hand them deliverables, et cetera. But... Uh, you know, the, the saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's quite apropos, right? Sometimes that horse drinks and achieves the benefits and follows your direction. And other times they don't. And that can be frustrating when you're on the agency side of the house. So, you know, that was, that was certainly one. I remember when I was at Symantec, I, I had a chance to take on all the content marketing responsibilities. And that was a big leap because I was going from leading the customer marketing program and taking on some stuff that I really hadn't done before. I was going to assume control of a magazine. I had never run a magazine before. Right. I never run newsletters before. I'd never run a webinar program before. I had never done a podcast program before. And I took that opportunity and it, you know, it's proven to be quite beneficial at the end of the day and was certainly a, the, the right decision for me at that time. And, so, you know, I did quite well. You roll with the punches. You're able to leverage your past experiences, your educational background, folks you know uh, within the marketplace and and you're able to succeed when you you uh, take those leaps of faith as you just mentioned 
So I'm curious, I want to dig a little deeper on that with Symantec. You spent nine years there. When did you take on that content marketing piece and how mature was it? Because you know, between 2004 and 2013, the years you were there, there was a lot of growing up for content marketing, I would say. I don't know if you agree with that. Very true. That, that's that's quite true. They called it Marcom back in okay. 2004, right? Some people still <laughs> do. Content marketing was... Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that's their old school, right? So that's a great point. Probably uh, it was like year two when I assumed those content marketing duties. And we were doing a lot of stuff back in 2005 and six that, you know, the Content Marketing Institute started talking about in 2013 and 2014, uh, started showing up in various books as bleeding edge activities. And I read those and think, you know, we did that stuff with our podcast program, our webinar program, our magazine back, you know, a decade ago or almost a decade ago. I initially was in charge of just the customer marketing program. We were doing some cool things on on that front, certainly. When Symantec acquired Veritas, and I'd been at Veritas about three months, they let their customer marketing person go. They told me, you're now responsible for all the Symantec pieces in addition to the Veritas pieces. And you don't get any more headcount, by the way, at the same time. (laughs) They also told me, it's impossible to get any security customers to talk publicly and tell their stories about how they're using Symantec. The only way you're going to get any references is to do them anonymously and publish generic customer case studies, uh, videos, and so forth, uh, if you could do a video that was anonymous. And I told them, you guys are asking them the wrong question. You're asking them to talk about all their problems and expose their dirty laundry. Who's going to want to do that? You need to flip the question and ask them how they're leveraging security to enable their business. And if I can't get them to talk publicly, you should fire me and you should hire someone else. Needless to say, they never fired me. When I left in 2013, my team, I think, had published 781 public references consisting of over 3,000 content assets. That's not all the other content we produced. That was just the stuff that was relevant for customer marketing in and of itself. So an interesting experience there. From a content marketing standpoint to the point you just made, you know, when we assumed charge of those pieces back in 2005, early 2005, podcast stuff was still new in the marketplace. It was, it was just I, I bet you a lot of people are listening now and saying, like, did podcasts even exist in 2005? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very hard thing for some people to imagine. And, and I'm wondering, like, how was it pitching something like that at that time to your your direct report or arming them to do so? I mean, that, that seems like a, an interesting item to pitch. Well, I had a DJ on my team, or that's what he did at night. <laughs> he had a great voice, <laughs> he, perfect he, for podcasting. KD approved, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he sounded great on radio and at the club when he was uh, playing music. So we had the perfect person running the program to begin with. But there was a lot of momentum and interest in podcasting at Symantec back in 2005. We actually had Robert Scoble come in, and he did a session with us and talked about best practices and some of the things that he'd just done at Microsoft. And and to your point, there were a lot of companies you would say podcast, and they'd say, what's that? Uh, What's ironic is by – you know, we'd build up a great audience. We, We would publish 30 or 40 podcasts per quarter 
on technical topics to thought leadership topics, interviews with our executives, interviews with customer executives or customers who are in the trenches managing our products to partners to some of the technical folks on our side, just a potpourri of different topics. And we had 15, 20,000 downloads and listened on a monthly basis. It was highly successful. But then, you know, 2008, 2009, probably about the time of the Great Recession, all of a sudden we had a regime come in who claimed that podcast uh, was, uh, had, had reached its denouement and was on the downswing. And, uh, you know, the benefits of podcasting were nebulous, uh, if that. And they actually wanted to cancel the program, if you can believe it even despite the fact we had all those great metrics and we had to fight to keep the program. I rejiggered this, that, and the other. We actually reduced the number of podcasts that we were publishing and I had to uh, move the person who was running the podcast program over to manage some other things in addition to his podcast responsibilities. But we were able to keep, keep, uh, uh, keep the program until I left and it was still highly successful. We had a lot of views. I would go meet with uh, customer executives and interview them for pieces in the magazine or do a video shoot with them, et cetera, and, you know, over lunch or dinner or, uh, you know, in between uh, sessions at, at their site, they, I would ask them about the podcast and I say, yeah, I actually, I remember one, one of the CISOs or CIOs I interviewed told me, yeah, I listen to those on my way to work every day, but my daughter, who's a high school student, cannot stand them. <laughs> <laughs> so she was subjecting her to them on the way to work. Uh, she's probably a CIO today, her daughter, I suspect, as a result. There you go. That's funny. All right, Patrick, we're, we're already starting to bleed into the, the second half of this podcast, which starts to th- talk about how you think of a, a buyer's journey, the person you're trying to win over or the customer very often in your case. So before we jump right into that, we're going to take a short break here on the marketer's journey. We're going to hear from our sponsor, and then we will be back to dig into a little bit more on customer marketing and what you can learn from Patrick and what he's learned in his career. Right back here after the break. Want to create high converting experiences for your demand strategies that accelerate pipeline and drive revenue? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and Stantec are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies. And we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com slash journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences to drive demand. All right, Patrick. So we just unpacked an amazing career that you've already had to date, even though, as you said, you started a little later than most have. You're at a senior director level where a lot of your experience has come from understanding and communicating well with the customer, even if that's back to handing out newspapers and learning from them. Now you're doing it with more content marketing as opposed to media publishing. What are... When you come into a new role like you did two plus years ago at Fortinet, you know, at the level that you're at now, at a much more senior perspective than when you would have joined Sun Microsystems, what is kind of what is your rally cry for your team? How do you get everyone to buy in to the the method and framework? I, I think sometimes I've I've seen on your LinkedIn you call it a solution messaging framework, but what does that first week look like to buy to win over the team? That's a great question. I had no team 
reporting to me at the time because we were building a brand new function within the company. And part of that process was obviously to get a lay of the land. Where were we at? The charter was to build an internal agency model from a content perspective uh, where, in, in essence, anyone who wanted to develop content within the company would come to us. And there were some, some tools already in place, which, which obviously helped in terms of driving that activity. And I've been in situations where I've taken on content roles, for example, at LifePress, and we had no tools. I remember sitting around the table, uh, the first quarterly all hands with the CMO, and he asked, does someone have a list of all the content that we've created as an organization? And everyone looked at each other. We didn't have it, even in okay. spreadsheet format. <laughs> it's so I, I, many companies are, are probably the same, and I'm sure a lot of marketers listening to this now can feel that pain even still today. Yep, very, very true. So one, understanding of what we wanted to accomplish. So we knew our charter, what technology tools were already in place that could be leveraged. In this case, we had Workfront, and Workfront had wide acceptance. Uh, it had been heavily evangelized probably for about six months. We had Uberflip in place from a, a content uh, hub the standpoint. So uh, you know that was a foundational element that we were able to build upon. So we, we had to understand what technology tools were there, number one. Number two, what type of uh, messaging uh, demand gen and content approach were we going to take? I'm a big believer, and so uh, was my boss as well as other members of the team, that uh, you start with the persona. And it's not an IT executive. Shit, there's about uh, uh, you know 12 different roles that might fit that description. But no, it has to be a specific persona. So we're talking about the chief information security officer. We're talking about the CIO. We're talking about the security architect, et cetera. Uh, so coming out of that, we identified, I think, two key personas that we wanted to go after. And then over time, we added more. And those we defined through a survey process, through rigor working with the sales team and talking to actual customers to find out what makes them tick. And we actually built out persona messaging for each of those identified key problem statements that each of them had. Uh, we weren't going to boil the ocean, right? So we identified three problem statements that were consistent across each of those personas. And we also figured out what our journey stages look like. There's, you know, problem education. You got to convince them they actually have a problem before they're going to even start entertaining an idea to buy a $300,000, $500,000, or a million-dollar solution from Fortinet, right? Uh, so you have to establish that type of content, that journey stage. And then there's the middle funnel where you have to define and delineate what type of requirements, features, and so forth they should look for in a solution. We're not talking about Fortinet at either of those stages. And then finally, at the very bottom, right, solution selection, that's when we start talking about Fortinet and telling them why Fortinet is the best solution in the marketplace. So we had to define what's that go-to-market uh, content strategy would look like that worked in lockstep with the product team, the channel team, the sales team, uh, the demand gym slash campaign team, as well as the PR and communications team. So I'm going to pause you there. First of all, that that is a great excerpt for everyone to share with their team as they're listening to this podcast, because I, I think you hit on so many different pieces. I almost visualize that as you're talking through it in a, in a table format. I'm in visioning kind of rows of, of different personas down, as you said, not just to IT specialists in your case or people who are listening, like don't, don't generalize your persona too much. Like understand who your buyers are, 
that different people weighing into that buying decision. And then if this is that table, my columns might be the different stages of the buyer journey that you just described. And then thinking about, as you said, like what boxes do I need to fill in on those two axes? Now, if you look at it that way, or, or you can understand it that way, Patrick, how do you decide though, which boxes to fill in first? Because you know, everyone in the org is probably, you know, shouting for content or using the wrong content, as we said earlier. How did you decide which ones were the priorities? Great question. You start with demand gen programs and how those are structured, and you map your content strategy to support those. So, you know, if you're going to run a demand gen program around endpoint security, you're going to run one around cloud security, then, okay, who is the relevant persona? In our case, we were starting with just two personas, so it's going to be one or two personas, and we're not going to do both. If we're going to do both, then they're two completely separate content streams, right? So you got to figure that out and partner with your demand gen campaign team to build that content out. The, the second group that you need to make sure is on board, in my opinion, would be the product marketing team. They're going to want to talk about their products. You have to educate them on the fact that that's great, that's a critical step in the process, but you have some steps previous to that one that you need to make sure is covered, starting with the fact that you got to create thought leadership problem education content and you got to create solution research or middle funnel content to get them to the point where they're actually willing to start entertaining those products or those solutions. When you get those two entities on board, you've accomplished more than half your battle. Those two teams, when we started this entire process, they didn't talk about personas, or if they did, they talked about the IT executive, right, which meant nothing. And they wanted to boil the ocean when they created content. They wanted to talk about the problem, talk about what you should look for in a solution, and talk about why Fortinet was best. So you ended up with a 25-page white paper that no one would read, right? right? And no one in the right mind, particularly when you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, is going to go from the top of the funnel to the bottom funnel in one fell swoop. So we, we got them on board, actually – Within six months, they were all talking the same narrative when it come when it, when it came to personas as well as the brand message, and we tied behind it. That's a huge accomplishment. I mean, they, you know, to get that first of all, that complex of an offering and that that many different buyers and internal. I mean, the, the size of Fortinet. How how many employees are Fortinet today? I think we have over eight thousand today. The company is yes. growing now on the Fortune five hundred list. Amazing. Amazing. Amazing to create that type of alignment internally, ultimately for your external audience, just by, by starting with some strategy, which uh, no doubt here has come over, as, as we've said, you know, 20 plus years in this field, not to mention almost 20 in school to get you to that point, which is definitely a wild journey. Uh, and it's, it's been a lot of fun unpacking that so far here. Patrick, if, if you have time, what we always like to do with our guests is keep them around. And we've talked about your career journey. We've talked about your buyer's journey through content. Love to hear about a, a personal journey you've taken in the last little while. So we'll take a short break and we'll be right back here with Patrick. Okay, Patrick. Uh, so you told me before we got started, because I warned you this segment is coming and you said you're not great at taking time off. So now you're going to have tons of job offers because everyone wants the workaholic. But you know, taking time off, I think, helps. It, it you know, rests our mind as marketers. It gives us ideas and different perspectives. What is maybe the best break you've taken personally in the last few years? What, what kind of cleared your mind? 
That's a great question. And it's important to decompress, as you just noted. You come back refreshed. You're more productive. You're more creative. You know, maybe that's the most, uh, the, the biggest benefit that you can talk about when you do take those, those times and those trips. I, throughout my career, as well as just my life in general, I've been very fortunate to travel to a lot of different places. I think I've traveled to 30-some countries. I've interviewed executives for major corporations. I've gone to Israel, for example, uh, four or five times. You know, been in the old city. I've been to the West Bank three times. Just really exciting trips, and those are you know things that you're hanging your hat on. You, you think about later on in life. Because of my academic background, you know, history is particularly salient to me. And you know, we've been to those, being able to go to some of those places, uh, you're able to actually tie. Uh, you know, a, a tangible location to some of the things that you studied. As to, you know, a place that we've gone to recently, we uh, spent, uh, I think it was nine days in Iceland uh, last summer. My wife put the whole trip together and we didn't do it through tours, et cetera. She did all this research. I bet we hiked 60 or 70 miles That's uh, amazing. During, during the trip. And she put together the whole loop around the island. We drove all the way, drove ourselves around the island. She had some. She, I she had one place where we hiked out to the waterfall across some guy's pasture because she found on a Chinese. My wife's Chinese. She's from Taiwan. Found on this Chinese website that uh, there's this great waterfall. If you would hike across this guy's pasture, but you had to park out on the road because it was private land, you could get up to this great waterfall. And I remember doing that, and it was it was definitely worth the hike. A lot of great history that's tied to Iceland. You know, and just the, the natural wonders are unbelievable. It's, Everything it's from a the volcanoes, it's absolutely, beautiful. volcanoes to the glaciers right to the coast. Uh, you have everything from desert to uh, lush tundra to uh, mountainous and ice terrain, right? Yeah, I got to go a couple of years ago. It's it's gorgeous, and and I was in there at that time of year where it, it actually doesn't get dark. So, I, I mean, you lose track of your days literally because the day almost doesn't end. And you know, whether it's touring and and climbing up waterfalls or you know just finding these these very relaxing spots to drink probably too much wine. I could go back there time and time again. It sounds sounds like you found a great place for a journey. You would look at your watch, and it would be 11 o'clock at night. The sun was still up, and you're out hiking in a big canyon in the middle of nowhere, uh, which was really a, a strange nuance when you, you, you really thought about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a great place. Uh, definitely one other marketers and, and really anyone should put on their bucket list. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us, uh, you know, between your, your personal career, the, the way you think about the buyer and, and make time for yourself. Definitely some journeys for us to learn from. And uh, I think all marketers are, are better for having heard this one. If people want to take a look at, you know, just a little bit more about you, follow you, things like that, and any good spots for them to go? Uh, probably LinkedIn profile, Patrick E. Spencer. I also have a Twitter. Uh, if folks want to follow me there, feel free to do so. Or I write regularly uh, on cybersecurity on the CISO Collective, which is our uh, thought leadership hub. Uh, has uh, native mobile apps that go with it. Uh, take a look at those uh, while you're on the site. Awesome, Patrick. Thanks so much for everyone who's tuned in to the marketer's journey today. Tune in and listen to some other great marketing leaders who have succeeded in their career. Lots to learn from each other as marketers, as we always know. If you've enjoyed this podcast, check them all out on any app that you listen to your podcast to. Until next time, I'm Randy Frisch on the marketer's journey. 
You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.